Section 7 of Chapter 18 of A History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jen Raimundo. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 18. Section 7. The circumstances under which he used his veto for the first time have never yet been correctly stated. A well-meant but unskilful attempt had been made to complete a reform which the Bill of Rights had left imperfect. That great law had deprived the Crown of the power of arbitrarily removing the judges, but had not made them entirely independent. They were remunerated partly by fees and partly by salaries. Over the fees the King had no control, but the salaries he had full power to reduce or to withhold. That William had ever abused this power was not pretended, but it was undoubtedly a power which no prince ought to possess, and this was the sense of both houses. A bill was therefore brought in by which a salary of a thousand a year was strictly secured to each of the twelve judges. Thus far all was well. But unfortunately the salaries were made a charge on the hereditary revenue. No such proposition would now be entertained by the House of Commons without the royal consent previously signified by a privy councillor. But this wholesome rule had not then been established, and William could defend the proprietary rights of the crown only by putting his negative on the bill. At the time there was, as far as can now be ascertained, no outcry. Even the Jacobite libellers were almost silent. It was not till the provisions of the bill had been forgotten, and till nothing but its title was remembered, that William was accused of having been influenced by a wish to keep the judges in a state of dependence. The house broke up, and the king prepared to set out for the continent. Before his departure he made some changes in his household and in several departments of the government, changes, however, which did not indicate a very decided preference for either of the great political parties. Rochester was sworn of the council. It is probable that he had earned this mark of royal favour by taking the Queen's side in the unhappy dispute between her and her sister. Pembroke took charge of the Privy Seal, and was succeeded at the Board of Admiralty by Charles Lord Cornwallis, a moderate Tory. Lowther accepted a seat at the same board, and was succeeded at the Treasury by Sir Edward Seymour. Many Tory country gentlemen, who had looked on Seymour as their leader in the war against placemen and Dutchmen, were moved to indignation by learning that he had become a courtier. They remembered that he had voted for a regency, that he had taken the oaths with no good grace, that he had spoken with little respect of the sovereign whom he was now ready to serve for the sake of emoluments hardly worthy of the acceptance of a man of his wealth and parliamentary interest. It was strange that the haughtiest of human beings should be the meanest, that one who settled to reverence nothing on earth but himself should abase himself for the sake of quarter day. About such reflections he troubled himself very little. He found, however, that there was one disagreeable circumstance connected with his new office. At the Board of Treasury he must sit below the Chancellor of the Exchequer. The First Lord, Godolphin, was the peer of the realm, and his right to precedence, according to the rules of the heralds, could not be questioned. But everybody knew who was the first of English commoners. What was Richard Hampton that he should take the place of a Seymour, of the head of the Seymours? With much difficulty, the dispute was compromised. Many concessions were made to Sir Edward's punctilious pride. He was sworn of the council. He was appointed one of the cabinet. The king took him by the hand and presented him to the queen. I bring you, said William, a gentleman who will in my absence be a valuable friend. In this way Sir Edward was so soothed and flattered that he ceased to insist on his right to thrust himself between the First Lord and the Chancellor of the Exchequer. In the same commission of treasury in which the name of Seymour appeared, appeared also the name of a much younger politician, who had during the late session raised himself to high distinction in the House of Commons, Charles Montague. 
This appointment gave great satisfaction to the Whigs, in whose esteem Montague now stood higher than their veteran chiefs Sacheverell and Littleton, and was indeed second to Summers alone. Sidney delivered up the seals which he had held during more than a year, and was appointed Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. Some months elapsed before the place which he had quitted was filled up, and during this interval the whole business which had ordinarily been divided between two secretaries of state was transacted by Nottingham. While these arrangements were in progress, events had taken place in a distant part of the island which were not, till after the lapse of many months, known in the best-informed circles of London, but which gradually obtained a fearful notoriety, and which, after the lapse of more than a hundred and sixty years, are never mentioned without horror. Soon after the estates of Scotland had separated in the autumn of 1690, a change was made in the administration of that kingdom. William was not satisfied with the way in which he had been represented in the Parliament House. He thought that the rabbled curates had been hardly treated. He had very reluctantly suffered the law which abolished patronage to be touched with his sceptre. But what especially displeased him was that the acts which established a new ecclesiastical polity had not been accompanied by an act granting liberty of conscience to those who were attached to the old ecclesiastical polity. He had directed his commissioner Melville to obtain for the Episcopalians of Scotland an indulgence similar to that which dissenters enjoyed in England. But the Presbyterian preachers were loud and vehement against lenity to Amalekites. Melville, with useful talents, and perhaps with fair intentions, had neither large views nor an intrepid spirit. He shrank from uttering a word so hateful to the theological demagogues of his country as toleration, but obsequiously humouring their prejudices, he quelled the clamour which was rising at Edinburgh. But the effect of his timid caution was that a far more formidable clamour soon rose in the south of the island against the bigotry of the schismatics who domineered in the north, and against the pusillanimity of the government which had not dared to withstand that bigotry. On this subject the high churchmen and the low churchmen were of one mind, or rather the low churchman was more the angry of the two. A man like South, who had during many years been predicting that, if ever the Puritans ceased to be oppressed, they would become oppressors, was at heart not ill-pleased to see his prophecy fulfilled. But in a man like Burnett, the great object of whose life had been to mitigate the animosity which the ministers of the Anglican Church felt toward the Presbyterians, the intolerant conduct of the Presbyterians could awaken no feeling but indignation, shame, and grief. There was, therefore, at the English court nobody to speak a good word for Melville. It was impossible that in such circumstances he should remain at the head of the Scottish administration. He was, however, gently let down from his high position. He continued during more than a year to be Secretary of State, but another secretary was appointed, who was to reside near the King, and to have the chief direction of affairs. The new Prime Minister of Scotland was the able, eloquent, and accomplished Sir John Darlrymple. His father, the Lord President of the Court of Session, had lately been raised to the peerage by the title of Viscount Stair, and Sir John Darlrymple was consequently, according to the ancient usage of Scotland, designated as the Master of Stair. In a few months Melville resigned his secretaryship, and accepted an office of some dignity and emolument, but of no political importance. The lowlands of Scotland were, during the year which followed the parliamentary session of 1690, as quiet as they had ever been within the memory of man, but the state of the highlands caused much anxiety to the government. The civil war in that wild region, after it had ceased to flame, had continued during some time to smolder. At length, early in the year 1691, the rebel chiefs informed the court of St. Germain's that, pressed as they were on every side, they could hold out no longer without succor from France. 
James had sent them a small quantity of meal, brandy, and tobacco, and had frankly told them that he could do nothing more. Money was so scarce among them that six hundred pounds sterling would have been a most acceptable addition to their funds, but even such a sum he was unable to spare. He could scarcely, in such circumstances, expect them to defend his cause against a government which had a regular army and a large revenue. He therefore informed them that he should not take it ill of them if they made their peace with the new dynasty, provided always that they were prepared to rise in insurrection as soon as he should call them to do so. Meanwhile it had been determined at Kensington, in spite of the opposition of the Master of Stair, to try the plan which Tarbet had recommended two years before, and which, if it had been tried when he recommended it, would probably have prevented much bloodshed and confusion. It was resolved that twelve or fifteen thousand pounds should be laid out in quieting the highlands. This was a mass of treasure which to an inhabitant of Appin or Lochaber seemed almost fabulous, and which indeed bore a great proportion to the income of Keppoch or Glengarry than fifteen hundred thousand pounds bore to the income of Lord Bedford or Lord Devonshire. The sum was ample, but the king was not fortunate in the choice of an agent. John Earl of Breadalbane, the head of a younger branch of the great house of Campbell, ranked high among the petty princes of the mountains. He could bring seventeen hundred claymores into the field, and, ten years before the revolution, he had actually marched into the lowlands with this great force for the purpose of supporting the prelatical tyranny. In those days he had affected zeal for monarchy and episcopacy, but in truth he cared for no government and no religion. He seems to have united two different sets of vices, the growth of two different regions, and of two different stages in the progress of society. In his castle among the hills he had learned the barbarian pride and ferocity of a highland chief. In the council chamber at Edinburgh he had contracted the deep taint of treachery and corruption. After the revolution he had, like too many of his fellow nobles, joined and betrayed every party in turn, had sworn fealty to William and Mary, and had plotted against them. To trace all the turns and doublings of his course during the year of 1689 and the earlier part of 1690 would be wearisome. That course became somewhat less torturous when the Battle of the Boyne had cowed the spirit of the Jacobites. It now seemed probable that the Earl would be a loyal subject of their majesties, till some great disaster should befall them. Nobody who knew him could trust him, but few Scottish statesmen could then be trusted, and yet Scottish statesmen must be employed. His position and connections marked him out as a man who might, if he would, do much towards the work of quieting the highlands, and his interest seemed to be a guarantee for his zeal. He had, as he declared with every appearance of truth, strong personal reasons for wishing to see tranquillity restored. His domains were so situated that, while the civil war lasted, his vassals could not tend their herds or sow their oats in peace. His lands were daily ravaged, his cattle was daily driven away, one of his houses had been burned down. It was probable, therefore, that he would do his best to put an end to hostilities. He was accordingly commissioned to treat with the Jacobite chiefs, and was entrusted with the money which was to be distributed among them. He invited them to a conference at his residence in Glenarchy. They came, but the treaty went on very slowly. Every head of a tribe asked for a larger share of the English gold than was to be obtained. Breadalbane was suspected of intending to cheat both the clans and the king. The dispute between the rebels and the government was complicated with another dispute still more embarrassing. The Camerons and Macdonalds were really at war, not with William, but with MacCallum Moore, and no arrangement to which MacCallum Moore was not a party could really produce tranquillity. A grave question therefore arose whether the money entrusted to Breadalbane should be paid directly to the discontented chiefs, or should be employed to satisfy the claims which Argyll had upon them. 
the shrewdness of Lochiel, and the arrogant pretensions of Glengarry, contributed to protract the discussions. But no Celtic potentate was so impracticable as MacDonald of Glencoe, known among the mountains by the hereditary appellation of Macian. Macian dwelt in the mouth of a ravine situated not far from the southern shore of Loch Leven, an arm of the sea which deeply indents the western coast of Scotland, and separates Argyllshire from Invernishire. Near his house were two or three small hamlets inhabited by his tribe. The whole population which he governed was not supposed to exceed two hundred souls. In the neighbourhood of the little cluster of villages was some copsewood and some pasture-land, but a little further up the defile no sign of population or of fruitfulness was to be seen. In the Gaelic tongue Glencoe signifies the glen of weeping, and in truth that passes the most dreary and melancholy of all the Scottish passes, the very valley of the shadow of death. Mists and storms brood over it through the greater part of the finest summer, and even on those rare days when the sun is bright, and when there is no cloud in the sky, the impression made by the landscape is sad and awful. The path lies along a stream which issues from the most sullen and gloomy of mountain pools. Huge precipices of naked stone frown on both sides. Even in July the streaks of snow may often be discerned in the rifts near the summits. All down the sides of the crags heaps of ruin mark the headlong paths of the torrents. Mile after mile the traveller looks in vain for the smoke of one hut, for one human form wrapped in plaid, and listens in vain for the bark of a shepherd's dog or the bleat of a lamb. Mile after mile the only sound that indicates life is the faint cry of a bird of prey from some storm-beaten pinnacle of rock. The progress of civilization, which has turned so many wastes into fields yellow with harvests or gay with apple blossoms, has only made Glencoe more desolate. All the science and industry of a peaceful age can extract nothing valuable from that wilderness, but, in an age of violence and rapine, the wilderness itself was valued on account of the shelter which it afforded to the plunderer and his plunder. Nothing could be more natural than that the clan to which this rugged desert belonged should have been noted for predatory habits, for, among the highlanders generally, to rob was thought at least as honourable an employment as to cultivate the soil, and, of all the highlanders, the Macdonalds of Glencoe had the least productive soil, and the most convenient and secure den of Roberts. Successive governments had tried to punish this wild race, but no large force had ever been employed for that purpose, and a small force was easily resisted or eluded by men familiar with every recess and every outlet of the natural fortress in which they had been born and bred. The people of Glencoe would probably have been less troublesome neighbours if they had lived among their own kindred, but they were an outpost of the clan Donald, separated from every other branch of their own family, and almost surrounded by the domains of the hostile race of Darmid. They were impelled by hereditary enmity, as well as by want, to live at the expense of the tribe of Campbell. Breadalbane's property had suffered greatly from their depredations, and he was not of a temper to forgive such injuries. When, therefore, the chief of Glencoe made his appearance at the Congress in Glenarchy, he was ungraciously received. The earl, who ordinarily bore himself with the solemn dignity of a Castilian grande, forgot, in his resentment, his wonted gravity, forgot his public character, forgot the laws of hospitality, and, with angry reproaches and menaces, demanded reparation for the herds which had been driven from his lands by Macian's followers. Macian was seriously apprehensive of some personal outrage, and was glad to get safe back to his own glen. His pride had been wounded, and the promptings of interest concurred with those of pride. As the head of a people who lived by pillage, he had strong reasons for wishing that the country might continue to be in a perturbed state. He had little chance of receiving one guinea of the money which was to be distributed among the malcontents. 
for his share of that money would scarcely meet Breadalbane's demands for compensation, and there could be little doubt that, whoever might be unpaid, Breadalbane would take care to pay himself. McKeon, therefore, did his best to dissuade his allies from accepting terms from which he could himself expect no benefit, and his influence was not small. His own vassals, indeed, were few in number, but he came of the best blood of the Highlands. He had kept up a close connection with his more powerful kinsmen, nor did they like him the less because he was a robber, for he never robbed them, and that robbery, merely as robbery, was a wicked and disgraceful act, had never entered into the mind of any Celtic chief. McKeon was therefore held in high esteem by the Confederates. His age was venerable, his aspect was majestic, and he possessed in large measure those intellectual qualities which, in rude societies, give men an ascendancy over their fellows. Breadalbane found himself, at every step of the negotiation, thwarted by the arts of his old enemy, and abhorred the name of Glencoe more and more every day. End of section 7. Recording by Jen Raimundo.